Hi, everyone. The Other Hand is the go-to podcast for anyone interested in UK and Irish business, finance, economics and politics. Chris and Jim take the issues of the day and discuss in ways that traditional media fear to tread. Jargon-free analysis and more than a little opinion have taken our podcast to top of the most listened charts. We'd be delighted if you could join the conversation. Welcome to Bubble Trouble, the conversations between the independent analyst Richard Kramer, that's him, and the economist and author Will Page, that's me. And this is what we do. We lay out the inconvenient truth about how the business and financial markets really work. As we approach the anniversary of our most popular podcast, that being NFTs are not for me, let's remind you of our new strapline. If there's a bubble at burst, we picked it first. This week, we're going to be discussing, read, arguing if the price is right. That's right, we're back to that topic of inflation, where I've been a bit of a self-proclaimed dove on the recent months. Ah, don't worry, meh, things will get back to normal. Well, the doves need to fly off because the hawk's coming to land, because Richard Kramer's going to be attacking the hope parade, claiming that he's a serenade. In Richard's view, prices are up, and in his view, they're staying up. So we're going to get back to that in a moment. Okay, Will, let me set out my stall. I have been observing a few things in the market of late where people really want to believe things are going to get better. They never imagine that they're going to get worse. It's kind of the opposite of that Kahneman and Tversky famous behavioral psychology work about our tendency to be risk averse and to value the avoidance of loss more than we value a statistically equal potential for gain. And everyone now wants to talk about a soft landing being on track for a second half recovery and so on. And we all want to look past the tough times that we know we're in and assume better times are coming. But it feels to me a little bit like we're whistling past the graveyard on so many issues, whether it's climate, (laughs) war, job losses, and so forth. And I've got to ask you, you've been more optimistic about the economy and about the long-term impact of inflation. So while we're getting started here, can you tell me some nice bedtime stories that end happily ever after by the time we get into coordinated economic growth in the second half of the year? Well, you talked about those double-digit inflation figures sailing off into the sunset. Is that the type of plot line you're looking for? Indeed. The ones which say, well, 9.1 going to 9.0, it's not getting any worse. Isn't that great? Even though it's still up 9% versus last year. Well, there's, my stance is quite nuanced, but I do believe that we're not dealing with inflation, we're dealing with an energy price shock. It's the supply side shock that hit the economy that set us into a tailspin. And supply side shocks wear off. You're seeing energy prices hit record lows, FT headline last weekend there. I do believe that shocks wear off and this transition mechanism, there's going to be a hangover for sure, but I am confident that we get back to normal and I am confident in the psychology, this is the important part, the psychology that we're going to get back to normal. So I would dispute that because what I haven't yet seen show up in my utility bill is the lower energy prices that supposedly are allowing windfall profits for the utilities and the energy companies. Now, we all have a lovely time harking back to when things were so much cheaper. I mean, I remember when I was in college what the cost of a bagel and an orange juice was. Never mind that there was that point, there was only one brand of orange juice. And There are loads of costs. I mean, college tuition in the U.S. is one good example that have risen just far faster than that inflation bundle you like to criticize. And the thing is, I can't help feeling that we're getting new price plateaus. So our utility bills go up a lot and then they stay up. The prices go up more from there. So 
Tell me how we're going to reverse this terrible inflation that we've all seen. Let's just not forget a point of history here where you were saying prices used to be so low. That's a fair comment, Richard, but they were also so low because inflation was so low. We did have a long period where inflation was rock bottom. We had a long period where interest rates were negative in real terms to try and get inflation back off the floor. So let me push back on that point in terms of maybe what we've got is a combination of an energy price shock, which sends numbers off into the stratosphere, plus a correction effect, which is they were too low, as repeat T00 too low for T00 too long. And now what we're seeing is prices getting back to where they should have been after all. It's a bit hypothetical, but let me run that one past you. Well, certainly the argument behind that says 0% interest rates for a decade or more were a great handout to the wealthy people who could afford to borrow money at 0% and created greater income inequality. But certainly when I look at underlying components of inflation, I don't think it's just energy prices. I mean, Certainly, you look at wages in the UK, and literally every public sector worker of all stripes, from healthcare workers to train drivers to all sorts of other staff, are striking because they have seen real terms decreases in their wages. They're not keeping up with inflation. Match that with the great resignation, with people coming out of the labor force, and you have another big factor in inflation, which is the cost of labor. And we know minimum wages have gone up in the US, in the UK, elsewhere. And we know that people are withholding their labor because they simply aren't able to make enough with the hours that they work to keep up with this inflation. So I don't think it's just energy prices. I think there are a lot of other inputs there that are driving that inflation up. And I don't expect that I'm going to be getting a giant refund from my electricity or gas supplier later this autumn. What did you say about this nation's electricity and energy companies? They're great stocks to hold because you get your money back that they ripped you off as a consumer. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think you, I'll concede. I think you've got some great points here. But let me push back on one of them, which is if you think about public sector wages. So yes, we have an energy price shock that's kicked off a bout of inflation, but we also have rising public sector wages and strikes. But that's deserved, right? You can't get it any other way. You can't get those wages up without the fear of inflation, and we can get into the inflation spiral debate. But if all you worry about is inflation, then you're right to worry about this. But if you worry about equality and incomes of public sector workers, it broadens the kind of the angst horizon here. And a lot of this inflation could be seen as a case of catch-up, B, well-deserved, and C, a force for good. That is, sorry, we're going to have a bit of inflation, but I'm correcting a lot of other bad points I can get worried about in the process. But if the entire asset stock of a nation or of the Page family is things like real estate and the money you have in the bank, and it's simply not keeping up, unless you've found a bank that gives you a 9% interest rate with inflation, then you are gradually, sorry, Will, getting poorer in real terms. And if that happens at a societal level, that's a bitter pill to swallow. Now, you may say, we're getting poor in real terms after never having had it so good for a decade, but we didn't think back in the midst of that decade and realize how good we were having it. We're just feeling the moment. Now, I agree that energy underpins a lot of other sectors. So industrials and agriculture and even tech powering data centers and servers are impacted by energy prices. But I really think that is only one of many sources of inflationary pressure 
And this comes down to something I want to pick up on later, which is the psychology of inflation. When you feel that pound in your pocket or dollar in your pocket is just not going as far anymore and you don't feel as wealthy, don't you feel that it's going to constrain people's behavior somewhat? Well, on the psychology of inflation, we are citing here the work of Robert Lucas, the Nobel laureate from Chicago University, who won the Nobel Prize for his work on rational expectations. But the real winner, of course, was his wife who divorced him after he won the prize because she had a <laughs> rational expectations that she was, he was going to win and cashed out 50% of a million pound prize fund. So credit due to both people in that food chain. I think, yeah, the psychology is going to be an interesting one. I'm not quite sure that with all the technical advancements that we're dealing with, be it our smartphones, be it our apps, be it our price transparency on websites, whether the psychology plays the same way that it was taught in the textbooks 20 years ago. I think we've moved on from that. Flipping it over a little bit, is there another psychological sort of angle to this, which is this government's inflating away their own debt stocks, dare I suggest a conspiracy theory here? Well, you've been pushing that one for a while, and I won't push back on it because I think it's clever and Machiavelli and probably too clever for a lot of the folks at the Treasury or the Fed. But let's think <laughs> this through. I think the I think too often we miss out on what's happening on the ground. And I remember going to your local corner shop after one of our morning runs and seeing that the price of butter had gone up from £1.99 to £2.39. And we don't really notice it when it's £2.39, and that's not a lot for a week's worth of butter, but that's 20% increase in prices. And when you start looking at that on the weekly shop or a basket of goods that your ordinary consumers are buying, I can't help but think that's going to have a material impact on behavior. Now, we don't see it because what is around us is prosperous central London, but that doesn't necessarily reflect the whole of the UK. I was just several different places in the States, and certainly you don't see it as much in, in New York City as you do in other smaller towns in the US where the picture is not nearly as rosy. And I can't help but think this collective increase of prices as quickly as it's happened, is something that is going to have a material negative impact on consumer discretionary spend in the second half of this year. And again, for our listeners, it's about thinking, how much money do you have cash at hand? How wealthy are you feeling? And when you see prices going up all around you, maybe you feel like it's getting tougher to keep up with the Joneses. Yeah, I think your advice for our listeners is rock solid on the real economy in terms of what do you cut back on and what do you reallocate from discretionary spend to compulsory spend? How do you readjust the family budget line, I guess? But let's move it back up to what our audiences really love to hear about financial markets. If your hawkish view is right, and if my long-term dovish view is wrong, and I am feeling a bit on shaky ground based on the most recent run of figures, but let's say that you give you the benefit of the doubt and the hawks went out here, what have the financial markets not priced in? And when I use the expression is, if you're right, what have the markets got wrong? And where they've got it wrong, where is the potential for bubble trouble going forward? Well, look, it, it's become clear that the central banks are having a very tough time steering these incredibly turbulent markets. You've got record debt in the US. You've got Japanese inflation accelerating. You've got German GDP shrinking in the fourth quarter. You've got all of these cross currents looking into aspects of the markets that. And. Yep. 
and Richard, we've yep. just got to remember, they've been impotent, if I use that word. They have been impotent for the best part of a decade and a half. Well, I would say- Central banks have done nothing since 2009-10 other than pump QE into the market. They've not changed interest rates. They've not followed forex policies. They've literally sat on their hands. So you can't expect an activist central bank, to quote last week's episode, to come into force when it's been very inactive for well over a decade. See, I would completely disagree with that, Will, because I think they have been incredibly activist by leaving interest rates as low as they have for as long as they have. And there are many observers who feel that Powell bottled it in 2018 when Trump bullied him into not raising interest rates then, and that was the time to cool off the economy before the parabolic burst of tech stocks and other speculative instruments, SPACs, NFTs, crypto, etc., that blew up from 2019 to 2021. And so I think it's wrong to say that those central banks have been impotent. They've been quite potent. What they've been quite potently doing is printing trillions of dollars of money, inflating the stock of money in the system without seeing the concurrent rise in consumer prices, because there was always more funding for a direct-to-consumer brand to tap into to offer you product below its cost of goods sold. I hear you. So let's hear it out for our audience's benefit. If the hawks are right, where have the markets got it wrong? Well, look, there is a wishful thinking trope that says we are going to see U.S. interest rates go up to around 5%, hang out there for a little while, and then nicely start to come down. And of course, that would spark the next wave of bubbles and so forth. But our longstanding contention has been that we're maybe halfway through this tech bear market. And as we talked about on last week's episode in restructurings, they go through three phases. And that first phase is getting rid of all the crazy flights of fancy projects or products your wife might have bought at some point. The second phase is measuring productivity and really getting down to brass tacks and when companies talk about getting back to their core business or improving their efficiency or productivity, that's fine. But that third phase is when you cut everything that's absolutely not necessary, but to survive. And I think we're going to see plenty of companies in a higher interest rate environment facing a range of inflationary pressures hit those big survival questions by the time we get through the end of this year. So if you're holding stock in a company that specializes in company offsites, dump them now. Well, indeed. And you've seen all of these companies that went through restructurings cancel those company offsites, cancel those big events. And indeed, if you're holding shares in a company that does human resources management software that they companies buy based on the number of employees they have, well, let's face it, you've seen all those layoffs across the tech sector and the huge in- explosion of headcount in all these sectors, not just in tech, but also in energy, might get rewound. And all the ancillary services that go with it, as well as the spending it creates, is going to wind down as well. And I think that is, is the shock that the market would rather not think about because it's pretty unpleasant. But that's the final cleansing phase, if you will, of a bear market where there's capitulation and people realize the worst might actually come to bear. One last question before we take it to the break is the bond market. Now, the bond market is something that I get, but I don't quite get. And I get they're scared of inflation. Are we got inflation? 
I also get that they like interest rates, and we're now getting some interest rates. So the bond market's come back to life. Now, what do you see if the hawks are right? What do you see for the bond market going forward? Well, when you think about what a bond is, it's certainty and predictability. So if you have a five-year bond that pays you 5% a year, you know pretty well what you're going to get. But if inflation is rising at 10%, well, that bond is only making up half the difference of the inflation eroding the value of your money. If you go back five or six years ago, the Germans and the Swiss were issuing 50-year bonds with negative interest rates. That's nuts. Because people thought that the value of the Swiss franc was sufficient that you would it would hold up better against other currencies because they'd be able to collect tax receipts more efficiently in Switzerland. And that country would be, because it's smaller and wealthier, more stable than a lot of the other currencies, that you would say, I would buy a bond that I know is going to be worth less in 50 years than I'm paying for it now. And I'm going to get I'm going to pay to hold it, but that's going to be a better outcome than buying a bond that might go up 3%, but in a currency that's facing 9% inflation. So I'm losing two-thirds of the value. So the bond market is all about predictability and certainty, and the equities market is obviously not because companies' performance can vary dramatically, and stocks can go up and down much more than bond yields are likely to vary. So If you're having a very uncertain second half of the year and markets are very nervous about equities and their prospects and you have rising interest rates, that would suggest that the bond market does relatively well because people just want safety and predictability and are less willing to gamble on equities where that recovery that we're all waiting for coming out of recession before we've properly entered into it is more uncertain. To weather the storm, basically, to weather the storm. Well, let's wrap it up with part one, but I just want to call back up that slight dispute we had about whether our central banks were potent or impotent. Your argument that by doing nothing actually makes you quite active reminds me of that famous Mario Draghi point during the heart of the global financial crisis, the head of the European Central Bank, where he said, I'll do whatever it takes to shore up the euro, and then proceeded to do nothing. But by saying that you do whatever it takes was enough for the markets to know that you don't need to do anything, just tell me you'll do whatever it takes. But he actually proceeded to do nothing. So he was potent and impotent in the same way. So you have a schizophrenic central banker. So that wraps it up for part one. Back in part two, where I'm going to try and get the doves back at the table. But we'll be back for that more in a moment. Welcome back to part two of Bubble Trouble. We're talking through the hawks and the doves and inflation, a word we can't seem to get away from these days. It's all over the front pages of our newspapers, and we can't seem to move in the UK without talking about the cost of living crisis. And I want to go down the rabbit hole a little bit with someone who I think is a bit of a connoisseur of these inflation statistics, Mr. Will Page, and hear his view. He is going to tell us what it's like when the doves cry about inflation not being high enough. <laughs> yeah. I, Will? To get the doves back at the table here so the hawks don't scare them off, I want to flag two headlines, just, just loosely talk around this. But one, I just picked this one up from the internet, a headline which said, remote working is costing Manhattan more than $12 billion a year. And a third headline came from Bloomberg, which is mm. three in four Londoners would quit instead of giving up working from home. 
Let's just unpack these two stories. If inflation is, as Milton Friedman told us, the famous University of Chicago professor, just a monetary phenomenon, and if indeed you go all the way back to David Hume and just assume that if you increase money supply, you increase prices, and that's it. That's all you have to do to get inflation down. You... Right. So we have a kind of a very simplified view of how inflation works, which is money. If remote working is sucked $12 billion out of Manhattan a year, that has to have sucked a lot of inflation out of Manhattan a year. A lot of that will be displaced to the suburbs. Some of that might be lost in the ether, but it's got to affect inflation statistics. And I just come at you, the hawk Kramer, and say, where do you really think these inflation statistics have factored in working from home or working from anywhere, given the huge wedge of costs that it's cancelled out of people's household budgets? Will, I will, having walked around Manhattan the week before last, I will tell you, not only do you see a lot of empty retail storefronts, but the likelihood is that those real estate developers that own those properties have not rented them out at far lower prices because they don't want the whole value of their building to be downgraded because their rental yields are so much lower. So I would think that if that $12 billion a year has been sucked out of Manhattan, that it hasn't magically popped up in commuter towns all around New York. It simply isn't being reflected yet in numbers. And if we really all continue to work from home, there has to be a lot of overvalued commercial real estate that either has been freshly finished or is still on the drawing board in city centers that's simply not going to get utilized at the same pace that we saw before the pandemic. So I'm not sure if we have just kicked the can down the road and avoided recognizing some of these holes in the economy, or if that $12 billion that didn't get spent in Manhattan really got <laughs> sprinkled around like fairy dust to every commuter belt town I'm going to come at this again, but I think in that answer, you may have just put a big flag on the play in terms of future bubble troubles in real estate. That is, when do you hold and when do you fold in your real estate prices? When do you drop them to get occupants in and when do you hold them to not devalue your property? And there may be something happening there because I'm seeing it in London, I'm seeing it in other cities as well. A lot of real estate is empty purely on that hold, not fold strategy. And if this work from home, work from anything mm. thing is going to become a permanent feature in our lives, well, you can't hold forever, correct? At some point, you're going to have to call it in. Absolutely. And we've already seen now for, I think, four or five months, and we'd love to have your chief economist friend from Redfin back on because there's clearly been a big change in the US housing market since we last spoke to her. You've seen a four or five month slide in house prices. And this was a principal source of really one of the largest asset classes in the world, residential real estate. We all need a house to live in. And it's been a major source of income and personal wealth growth around the world. And if all of these new build properties that have gone up in cities like London and New York are no longer keeping their resale value, they aren't safe deposit boxes for offshore investors anymore, and they start to come onto the market greatly reduced prices, 
even the banks, which right now are desperate to lend money out, are not going to be able to find takers for these for these sort of falling knife assets in that real estate class. And I think you see that happening already in the U.S. housing market, where housing starts are down, house prices are down, and transactions are way down. And so where is this money going? Where is this extra $12 billion going? Because if it was going on Hudson Valley real estate, well, hasn't that rolled over as well? Yeah. And I don't want to paraphrase Daryl's work or even try to pretend to be as clear and precise in her language, but I did hear her recently talk about a policy in Seattle to get occupants back into those houses. Yeah. Like I think they're looking at a sort of use it or lose it clause. So you've got all this empty property. I know what the game is. You're holding up prices. No one's paying. And we've got a housing crisis. So let's get people back into those houses and almost looking at government intervention solutions there. Let's go to my second headline real quick, which is three in four Londoners would quit, quit, quit instead of giving up working from home. This raises other issues too. I wonder whether one of the reasons why they're you know, suggesting they'd quit is because they don't like the cost of coming into the office. And if they don't like the cost, they don't like that inflation at the CPI basket here in the UK is measuring, which is the normal world, because they like the inflation rate that they're living, which is the real world. They're in the suburbs, they've got their own places, they're not paying £6,000 a year in train fares and all that stuff. Now, two things here. One, those people working from home, I think, have a different measure of inflation from those of us who are commuting and working in cities. And two, which is a dovish perspective, by the way. And then secondly, if you wanted to bid them back into the city, you might need to raise their wages even more, which itself could become inflationary. So there's two to tango here. So firstly, what do you think about the argument that people who are working from home are looking at a completely different measure of inflation from the rest of us? Well, look, we all have a range of input costs in our lives, whether it's setting up a home office, having a commute, having a job which requires us to travel around a lot. And it's clear that so many of those ancillary costs to any of those setups have gone up. If you stay at home, you've still got to go to the grocery store and buy lunch for yourself. And prices in the supermarkets we know have gone up. The cost of running your electricity to power your computer all day, that's gone up. So it's not like there's somewhere to hide from economy-wide inflation that we're seeing. But to their credit, when they do their numbers and they say, my monthly shopping bill's gone up by, let's say, £40, but I'm saving £6,000 a year in train fares, it's inconsequential to what they've managed to cut out. Yeah. I tend to think the vast majority of people don't do their monthly budgets like that. They don't calculate it. They don't think about it. They bring money in and they spend money oftentimes spending more money than they've got. And you see now mountains of credit card debt, both in the UK and in the US. And it's yeah, a big question a with rising interest rates, whether this is going to be become a more serious problem over time. Let me flip it over to macroeconomic policy. If we're mm. going to get back to a new normal, a normal world, back when I was studying economics, we used to talk about these things called Taylor rules. Yeah. We simply said, if you've got 2.5% inflation and you've got 2.5% economic growth, then inflation plus growth gets you to your base rate for the central bank, 6%, 5%, and then the banks lend at 6%, and that's your cost of your mortgage. Mm. I mean, it's super simple and straightforward, but it kind of worked because the macroeconomic framework worked. You know, everything made sense. Now, nothing makes sense. Now, inflation's right. way over here. Interest rates are way over there. We don't really know what's going on with economic growth. 
But do you think there's going to be a role for Taylor Rule logic in the future, or was that just when everything was just so easy to explain and we're not going to see that again? Well, so if we go back to one of the great debates about whether you need a purgative recession or not to clear out all the excesses of the economy, your Taylor Rule would say, let's say the U.S. is going to grow 2% this year and they're having inflation of 8%, well, we ought to have a 10% interest rate. And you want to see the equity markets panic? Throw out a 10% interest rate and watch people scurry. So I guess the question now is, do you see central bankers that will dare to take the Paul Volcker approach and clear out the excesses of the economy with very high interest rates for a short period of time? Grand. And then no, I mean, that's a question for you, buddy. Don't, it's not grand. There, there you are, the inflation hawk. You think it's going to come down. You don't think we need the purgative recession. You don't think things are going to be bad. We'll have a happy, soft landing. Tell me, what if that doesn't work out? What do you do? The worry, I guess, is stagflationary scenarios of just a contracting economy and raising interest rates. And that's a tricky one. And it's hard to look at the current state of the UK and not expect it to be a contracting economy for the next 12 or 18 months. And that's where you get your labor market disputes because you just can't afford the real terms price increases being demanded by the market. You need prices to correct if you're right. But there's not <laughs> there's not many other views at the table to help work out that scenario. Look, let me let me put a question to you. You're advising lots of companies, not in the sort of snake oil consulting firm type of way of giving them pretty charts that were given to the last seven companies they advised, but really doing (laughs) real economic modeling with them and getting them to think about consumption and where spend is going. How do you get these companies to factor in the impacts of inflation, both the practical ones, which are the money in people's wallets after they spend on necessities, and these psychological ones that say, geez, I've seen prices go up for everything, and am I less, less well than before? Well, it's an interesting way of playing around here, which is called the, the domino effect, which is during a recession, domino sells more pizzas. The argument being you cut back on going out for restaurants and stock up on pizzas for sitting in watching movies on Netflix. More cost-efficient way of achieving the same goal, A, eating, and B, enjoy video content. I think Estee Lauder talked about this with lipstick as well, like affordable luxuries during tough times. I think there's a lot of that to be done. Now, one area that I'm spending a lot of time in just now is live music, and I'm pretty strong on that sector going forward. Have they got issues with inflation? Absolutely. Cost of putting the shows, up. Cost of hiring labor to run those shows, up. Everything's up. But can you wrap all that up in a ticket price and still maintain your margins? It seems so. And it seems that what I think people are beginning to do is peel back on going on short breaks abroad to Europe, here in the UK, for example, and pump up and going to shows instead. So they've got that dominoes effect. And that, that's what you're looking for there is people still want entertainment. They want entertainment that's more affordable. So what's the trade-off? What's mm. the conjoint? What's the balancing act people are performing? And I think there's strong evidence to suggest that the demand to go and see shows is greater than ever before. Uh, the value of the British live music industry was bigger in 2022 than it was in 2019 when the world was normal. That's how hard it's bounced back. But if they're doing that, and there's a tougher constraint on spending, who takes the weight? Who takes the cut? I think it's those luxury trips abroad. I think it's those things that you read in the FT Weekend magazine, which you now stare at, but don't actually activate in terms of your power. So I think those trade-offs are are what companies need to work out for. But if you're going to allocate spending to some experience, it's got to be something unique, right? 
So that's mm-hmm. the point of your seeing your favorite band play in a venue near your house. It's something that's so unique. You're willing to pay, what are these ticket prices? Two, 300 pounds for these concerts in, in Def stadiums? Def Leppard sold out Wembley Stadium at that price. Can you believe that? Def yeah. Leppard in 2023. Yeah, to, to 50 or 70,000 people wanting that unique one-off experience. And it means that much to them. Mm-hmm. Now, will we have the same pool of people with that disposable income to spend in a year's time? I think that's going to be a really interesting question to come back and look at. And the other thing I'd bolt onto that real quickly is the ease to which you can manage your spending habits. And on the radio the other day, I think I was listening to Jazz FM with radio adverts. I think it was Barclays Bank was advertising a new feature, which makes it much easier to manage your direct debits. Really promoting that all you had to do was swipe left to unsubscribe from all that stuff that you don't need to spend money on. I thought that was really interesting. That's just the bank offering a facility. But what they were doing was, you know, planting a powder keg under all these subscription models, which are cashing in and have been doing so for the best part of a decade. So if their country makes it easier to unsubscribe, we'll see churn effects with subscription services. And of course, Netflix would be the number one candidate here happening in the UK, perhaps more so than anywhere else, because the banks are making it so easy. It's like, like TikTok, you just swipe, don't want to pay for Netflix anymore, and they take care of business. So that's a really interesting dynamic to look out for with inflation and the spending squeeze hitting our economy. But if you swipe right, if you swipe the other way, can you resubscribe straight away? Because that whole process of signing up for subscriptions is so painful. And if you could make that asymmetric, if you could make it easier that to jump on and off the train, maybe that's something more people would take advantage of. Now, Netflix is unusual because they've always made it very easy to pause or cancel your subscription. But Again, getting signed up at the on-ramp has always been a painful process for all sorts of consumer services. Look, I want us to move to smoke signals, and I think each of us have to give one. Where we think this inflation train is going. One thing we can say that if the doves were wrong and inflation bites harder and longer, and another thing that people need to know, if the hawks were right all along and we get wages and prices coming back down to earth, and we're, we, it all feels more normal by the time we get in the second half of this year. Why don't you go first? I, I think that the smoke signal for me, which suggests, which makes me believe in my dovish view on inflation and the economic outlook, is when people talk about the 1970s. And I hear it on the Today program, I hear eloquent economists talking about it. It's like, we're not in the 1970s. The labor market doesn't function like the 1970s. Those textbooks don't apply to a, a modern economy in 2023. The economy is much more open. It's much more dynamic. There's much more labor migration. It's just much more attuned to getting things back to normal. I think those rigidities, a very geeky economic word to drop at the end mm-hmm. of a podcast, but those rigidities that existed back then don't exist anymore. And that's why I believe that things are going to get back to normal a lot sooner than the pessimists would hold out for. That's my case for the doves, but I got a hawk flying in here smoking something different. Yeah, I guess several issues, I think, are coming to the fore at once. There is a deeply dysfunctional and neutered political leadership in many countries. You have big elections coming up next year, and there's going to be a lot of hesitation, pausing, uncertainty into those election seasons, both in the UK and in the US. You see consumer discretionary spend is going to be tightened for the masses. You cannot turn on Radio 4 
every morning without hearing one or another variant of the cost of living crisis story. And it's heartbreaking in so many different ways. The mayor of London has just approved free school meals for every pupil. Some people are criticizing that amazingly and not realizing what it's like for the students who have to get the free meals to be sat next to the students who don't. And we can't stop hearing about this. And I have to think that it has a long-term impact. You have to remember the media constantly reflects the unreal economy and brings us the next big thing in the lives of the rich and famous. And I think we are going to have to reckon with all of these pent-up inequalities and inefficiencies in the economy that have led to this staggering rise in inflation. And it's not going to go away any more than Vladimir Putin is about to turn around his tanks and march back out of Ukraine and we'll all be back to the new normal in the world of energy prices. Reasons to be cheerful, Richard. Reasons Thank to be you. cheerful. Sorry, I'm a Dr. Doom here, but, but I wouldn't want people to think that when you hear all of this highly promotional commentary by the financial markets, which would love nothing better than to have a soft landing or a mild recession. That Back just sounds like, a, yeah, that's, and of course, that's spoken by highly paid professionals who don't have to face the frontline pressures that nurses or train drivers or any of these other categories of folks going out on strike do because they've seen inflation eat away their real wage growth in the last years. And I think there is a bill to pay in consumer discretionary spend that will trickle through the entire economy. Interesting. Look, I don't want to bum everyone out at the end of our latest podcast, but we want to be realistic. I think there's a bubble to be burst in the hopeful economic forecasting between now and the end of the year. And I would love to be proved wrong that we sail through this. The world is at peace and inflation is under control without having to have 10 or 15% interest rates a la Paul Volcker in the, uh, in the 80s, it was, Will. So with that, we'll bring this episode to a close. We're going to be coming back in the next couple weeks to focus on some other hot topics and bubbles brewing in the tech market in areas like AI, which you can't seem to go very far without hearing about, and lots of other topics. We'll be back next week with myself, Richard Kramer, and my co-host, Will Page, and this is Bubble Trouble. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Will Page and I will see you next time. Hi, everyone. The Other Hand is the go-to podcast for anyone interested in UK and Irish business, finance, economics and politics. Chris and Jim take the issues of the day and discuss in ways that traditional media fear to tread. Jargon-free analysis and more than a little opinion have taken our podcast to top of the most listened charts. We'd be delighted if you could join the conversation.